Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us. I just had such a great time talking with Paul Rouser about his new book, On Cold Mountain, a Buddhist reading of the Hanshan poems. This came out in 2015 with the University of Washington Press. Now, this is a book that takes us into and really builds a Buddhist poetics and a Buddhist mode of reading out of a really beautiful and fascinating collection of poems that are written by someone who is named after um, the place that the poems are named after, and that is Cold Mountain or Hanshan. Now, what the book does is it not only kind of takes us into debates around this authorial figure, um, scholarship on this particular poetry collection, ways that people have tried to understand the genesis of this book, but it also, and perhaps more importantly, um, takes us into the poems themselves and really shows us here are some of the really important and fascinating tropes and themes and structural elements. And it really helps us inhabit and walk through and understand and, and sort of open up these poems in a way that's explicitly not just for specialist readers. This is a book that you can read if you have zero background in Sinology, zero background in Buddhist studies, if you're just interested in reading a good book about some great poems. And incidentally, some great poems that were translated by Gary Snyder, the American poet, poems that inspired um, a, a book that some of you may have read, The Dharma Bums by Jack Kerouac, that inspired some really interesting um, beat and post-beat writers um, that are actually explored in the book as well. So in the course of the conversation to come, you're going to hear us talking about the Cold Mountain poems. You'll hear us talking about Hanshan. You'll hear us talking about um, blasted trees and mildly erotic imagery and the idea of roaming at rest. You'll hear us talking about satire, but you'll also hear us talking about Jack Kerouac um, and beat poets. So lots of stuff to come. Um, I'll let you get right to it. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening, for your support of the channel. And I hope you have at least as much fun as I did talking with Paul. Thanks so much. Enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Paul Rouser about his new book, On Cold Mountain. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Paul. And thanks so much both for writing a really engaging and actually quite beautiful book and also for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome to the channel. Oh, thank you for having me, Carla, and thank you for the compliment. Of course. So, Paul, let's start, as is traditional for the channel, um, by talking a little bit about what brought you to the field. And specifically, how did you come to work on Chinese studies? 
Well, um, this goes back way, way a lot longer than I like to think about. Um, but um, I came from a small town, kind of lower middle class, and got into Harvard, which was sort of surprising. And nobody in my family had really had that sort of educational background before. And I was a real kind of pseudo-Bohemian when I was in high school. And I was going to study French poetry. And I was going to read Rambo and Baudelaire and everything. And I got to Harvard and I discovered that every damn person around me had spent summers in France. And, you know, and so everybody knew French and suddenly my exotic kind of cigarette smoking self was kind of ruined by this. And so I looked around and I said, well, I'm going to learn a language that everyone finds too difficult. And so I started taking Chinese. <laughs> so it was, it was really a pretty, you know, not a terribly well thought out <laughs> decision, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, but I mean, I fell in love with the language and uh, sort of stuck it out and uh, worked, I guess, through my undergrad years at Harvard, worked a lot with Patrick Hannon, who was a lovely, lovely man who just really went out of his way to support me. And then about the time that I graduated, Steve Owen came to Harvard, um, and he was a really prominent scholar of Chinese poetry. And uh, I was just so enchanted by a lot of what he was writing at that time that that uh, I decided that I really wanted to stay there if I could and work with him. So, so that's what I did, and sort of stayed, you know, stayed there and worked on Tang poetry essentially. I mean, originally I was going to work on modern literature, but back in those days, modern literature meant pretty much May 4th era literature. And uh, I actually translated some plays by Guomo Roa. The, the sort of the sort of the May Fourth writer for whom the term literary apparatchik was kind of invented, um, and uh, I was so disillusioned by the time I finished translating the plays that I decided, well, maybe I want to do pre-modern literature. I think <laughs> <laughs> your, your story is so funny because it's so at least it, initially it so resembles my own. I was also mm. um, I was a first generation college student, got to Harvard. I um, didn't want to study Chinese because it was necessarily hard, but I was basically just like, dude, you can study Chinese? Chinese. <laughs> Why isn't everyone studying Chinese? I'm going to study Chinese also at Harvard. So I can I can totally feel um, I feel where that's going there. So, <laughs> so the book that we're that we're talking about today focuses on a collection of poems and their legendary author, both of which were called Hanshan, or Cold Mountain. Now, over the course of our conversation, um, we're going to talk about all of these things. We're going to talk about why I just um, mentioned Hanshan and Cold Mountain as two kind of different things. We're going to talk about what it means to talk about the author of this text or an author of this text. We're going to get into all of these really super fun details. But before we get there, what brought you to this particular topic? How did you come to this collection and to a decision to write a book-length object about it? Well, I mean, I think a, a big part of it was that um, if, you, if you've been a student of Stephen Owens, um, that can be very daunting because he really is incredibly prolific and incredibly knowledgeable about Chinese uh, poetry and literature. And I think that, you know, when you kind of get to the point where you sort of want to strike out on your own and sort of create your own sense of voice, you really have to think of ways to sort of deal with that to a certain extent. Um, and I think that compared along with the fact that I was getting increasingly interested in Buddhism, uh, maybe around the year 2000, um, 
And that was partly because I think um, all the work I had done in poetry up to that point was kind of very much part of the elite mainstream tradition, which you know, one can broadly call Confucian. That doesn't mean that all Chinese poetry obviously are, is written from a Confucian point of view, but the poetics right, is rooted in the ancient Confucian classics and so forth. And there's this strong sense of... Uh, of a kind of literati speaking to other literati, of a kind of a, a community, a shared community of Confucian literati writing poetry. And uh, Buddhism was always a little bit excluded from that. Um, and so a big part of it, I think, was, you know, knowing that this was something that that uh, my teacher and a lot of his students hadn't worked with so much. Uh, I really sort of became interested to, to see if I could figure out if there was something really going on with Buddhist poetry as such, if, if you could even sort of talk about it. Um, I mean, there are other scholars like like Tian Xiaofei, who's done a really good job at exploring the impact of Buddhist aesthetics and philosophy on mainstream poetry. But um, no one had, had really talked very much about the possibility of a kind of a, uh, I guess you'd call a kind of a counter tradition or a tradition that was kind of operating alongside of uh, traditional Chinese mainstream poetics. And Han Shan was kind of the obvious place to go at that point because uh, it was such a famous collection and one that, uh, even though not famous as a, a kind of a mainstream poetry collection, was something that people knew about, um, particularly Buddhist practitioners. And of course, um, there was the whole business with with the fact that it became so immensely popular in uh, in um, the world of modern American literature, with the Beats adopting it, with Gary Snyder adopting yes. it, and so forth. Um, and you know, I started looking at Han Chan. I suddenly realized that Han Chan had probably been translated more often than any other Chinese poet, for the most part. And which is just hysterical because, as I think I say in the book, it's, you know, uh, there have been people, I think, people in the field, sinologists who have sort of said, oh, I just really can't understand why people pay so much attention to these poems or, you know, not very interesting. They're kind of a sidelight and so forth. And and when I meet uh, Chinese scholars as well, sometimes they'll say like, oh, Han Shan, or even in some cases, college educated students won't even know who he is, mm-hmm. actually. So I was also kind of interested in that, the fact that there was this kind of huge gap between his reputation in the Western world and um, his somewhat greater obscurity in China actually was a big part of it. So that was that was mainly what I was trying to do, was trying to see if I could, you know, see if something interesting could be said about the poems and if that was connected to uh, a distinctive Buddhist way of looking at, at poetry that wasn't necessarily completely the same as the as the mainstream Confucian tradition. And what you just said actually brings up a really important point that comes up, at least what I take to be a really important point that comes up really right at the beginning of the book. Now, when we're talking about um, on, on Cold Mountain, right, when we're talking about Cold Mountain itself mm. as Buddhist poetry, it's not at all self-evident what that means. And one of the really, really interesting things that happens from early on in the book, but then the whole book is really showing us how to do this, is that the book presents and proposes what it calls a Buddhist approach to poetry, rather than focusing on the intentions of the author in reading this poetry. It Mm. offers a way of thinking about the importance of the way a poem is read. So in, in a way, it seems that what makes this Buddhist poetry is the way that it is read and used and mobilized. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems like a really, really crucial point um, for listeners to understand. 
yes. And, and I think part of the reason why I got interested in, in that and in seeing things that way is because the conversation that had been going on in the field about what is Buddhist poetry or is there such a thing as Buddhist poetry was still really rooted in uh, authorial intention. Um, and the classic example of that is Wang Wei, uh, uh, the, the great sort of 8th century poet who wasn't about Buddhist, but people have been arguing over how Buddhist, quote unquote, the poems are and that, you know, was his Buddhist beliefs an essential part of the poem, of the poetry. And in all of those cases, you really can't prove it one way or the other. Um, it, it all depends on, on what you want to see in it. And so I realized that I couldn't necessarily take that approach. And the other thing was, is I was also curious over the fact that, that so many people seem to read the Han Shan poems as Buddhist poems, even though a good many of them, possibly even the majority of them, are not, uh, do not make explicit references to Buddhist beliefs as such. And then I was just lucky enough to, to come upon the, the Hakuin commentaries, the, the commentary of the, the great Zen 18th century uh, Japanese Buddhist speaker Hakuin. <laughs> where he had a, a commentary on the Cold Mountain poems that sort of did exactly what I was looking for, um, where he was taking a poem, uh, even a poem that wasn't explicitly Buddhist, and reading it uh, in, a, in a very, very doctrinal way in a lot of ways. Um, so I was sort of thinking, well, you know, and then I was looking at the preface, which of course, is now generally concede, conceded to be a forgery, a later forgery. And the preface is kind of situating Han Shan very much in a Buddhist context. And then there's this wonderful uh, comment that comes up, I think, two or three times in the preface, that he is actually an incarnation of the Bodhisattva Manjushri, <laughs> the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, and that his friend Shurda is Samantabhadra, uh, and that Fungan, his other friend, is, is Amitabha. And um, it that just made me really wonder if that wasn't just a sort of a, a show-off comment that there was actually something really interesting there that would tell you something about the um, the attitudes that people had when they came to the collection. Um, and from there, I mean, I'd, I've always been sort of attracted to, I guess, what would be called reader response theory. Um, the idea that that the the motivations of the author is maybe not as important as the community of readers and how that changes over time. And um, with that in mind, I thought it was kind of really important for me to try to, to you know, I, I'm not saying that my readings are exactly what a pre-modern Chinese reader would have felt when, when she or he read the poems, but I did want to create a way of reading that gave that more space and more respect, mm -hmm. um, rather than the two other alternatives I talk about, about interpretation in the, in the book, which is, on the one hand, trying to read the poem straightforwardly as autobiographical self-expression of a historical person, Han Shan, on the one hand, or, um, as I think probably a lot of Western scholars would read them now, as essentially a collection of anonymous poems by, written by uh, a, a group of Buddhist monks that then sort of got sort of lumped together and attributed to this sort of magical figure, right? Um, so it was really kind of trying to find a way that, that sort of was both traditional and non-traditional, I think, in, in trying to read the poems. So the first part of the book introduces readers to some of these issues um, surrounding, you know, how to understand the poems, how to understand and think about not just the authorship, but what it has looked like to try to understand the authorship of this book. Mm. So 
Um, it takes us into the prefatory material that you've um, kind of just alluded to, later debates about its authenticity, arguments in Chinese scholarship about the life and dates of the poet, and much more. It also proposes a way to think um, in a way that we might call um, Buddhist poetics, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. So oh. first, um, let's talk about the poet. What do we and what can we know about this putative author of the Cold Mountain Poems? Well, uh, my basic point is that we can know absolutely nothing, right? <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> um, just why I think just that we have this preface. That the one thing that really fascinates me, right, is that the preface, as far as I know, is the only reliable text as such that sort of talks about the Shurda, Fungan, Hanshan friendship. These three, you know, Hanshan is a kind of a. Um, uh, a, a, a secular recluse who lives near the, uh, the Guoqing Monastery and that Shurda is a monk at the monastery who makes friends with him and that, that Feng Gan is kind of another figure associated with the monastery. That, that, that story about the three of them, even though it's tied to this preface that everyone sort of now acknowledges to be uh, probably a later forgery, it hasn't kept anybody, even if they admit that the piece is a forgery, from accepting the kind of Handan, Shurda, Fungan story, that there's this uh, desperate need to have the kind of the, these figures as kind of um, uh, real to some extent. Uh, although probably you, you also know, if you know a good bit about the, about the Chan tradition, the tradition that later becomes known as Zen in Japan, it's pretty clear that these guys are kind of part of what you call Zen folklore. They're what religious scholars call antinomian monks, uh, or, or at least Tanshan's, or Tanshan's technically not a monk, but he sort of fits that pattern of uh, figures that kind of are deliberately provocative, deliberately insulting, um, deliberately try to drive people um, to reconsider their own complacency um, and thus uh, sort of arrive at a greater level of wisdom. And so... um, in that sense, it makes a lot of sense that this sort of story would grow up around the poems as a kind of a biographical frame. But other than that, we really don't know anything. Um, there's, uh, as I say in the book, there's a number of uh, scholars, including Edwin Pulleyblank, the historical linguist, who's pretty sure that most of the poems are 7th century. Um, there's a, another scholar who also argues the same thing, but the Chinese uh, general consensus is that he's probably 9th century or 8th century, which would kind of make him um, flourishing right at the time of what's known as classical Chan, when you have kind of the evolution of famous stories about early Chan patriarchs, uh, which are sort of the basis for a lot of our famous Chan stories about, you know, crazy monks being hit on the head and, and, you know, koans, riddles and things like that. Um, So it's, you know, other than that, we really didn't know anything. We've got uh, uh, the first printing of the collection, probably 12th century, more or less, although we know that the collection was in print maybe about 100 years earlier. So it it all becomes it's pretty much all speculation um, essentially, and as I say in the book, I mean uh, Chinese scholarship abhors a vacuum. So <laughs> scholars have been trying very hard to sort of you know be very speculative and try to come up with a reasonable story that kind of accounts for the texts and tries to figure out what it is. And, and all of them are, are quite interesting arguments. They're all kind of plausible, but none of them are really provable to any extent. Um, 
But uh, a lot of it also, interestingly, involves the kind of the, the tendency in scholarship until very recently to create, I think, fairly clear boundaries between religious systems of belief in China so that um, – until relatively recently, you know, Taoism was Taoism and Buddhism was Buddhism. And it's only really recently that we're coming to realize with works like uh, the scholarship of Robert Scharf, for example, where um, we realize that in the Tang dynasty, at any rate, the, the Taoism and Buddhism, they're just ripping each other off all the time. And uh, sometimes it's kind of competitive, sometimes it's collaborative, but um, there's no real sense of um, – uh, of a kind of a language or a discourse that is only exceptionally Buddhist or exceptionally Taoist. And so that kind of also leads to an interesting consequence of modern scholarship where there had, until recently, there was kind of a tendency to want to argue, you know, oh, he was Buddhist, no, he was Taoist, or first he was Taoist, and then he converted to Buddhism, and so forth. And um, that's also kind of part of the of the desire to kind of create a story, a backstory for him, is to kind of connect him with a particular religion tradition. Um, and the poems really don't allow for that, I think, for the most part. They're just really all over the place as far as that's concerned. Um, so, you know, essentially, yeah, I mean, we just have this, this sort of body of folk poems, essentially, with a very strong story that's attached to them that has become kind of important for people. And I think Hanshan's really kind of more important as a kind of a um, uh, a kind of a voice behind the poem that everyone sort of assumes when they read, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the wonderful things about the book, and it's really um, uh, modeled in this section of the book, but it extends throughout the whole thing, is the way um, you paid really careful attention to the writerly aspects of the craft. So, for example, mm-hmm. in taking us through in this first chapter, um, the prefatory material and some of these arguments and um, kind of taking us through what could be, right, what could in other hands read as a series of relatively dry debates. It's not dry at all. You imagine for us um, the reading experience of this um, uh, invented, interested reader from the 12th century, a Ms. Chun, and you take us through along with Ms. Chun to kind of introduce um, the all of these issues in a really interesting um, and just very pleasant to read read kind of a way. I know you say at the very beginning of the book that um, this is a book that you've written um, for not just a specialist academic audience, but also in a way that appeals to a wider readership as well. So can you talk a little bit about that sort of in what ways did um, here or, you know, elsewhere or wherever you'd like to talk about, did your efforts to, and I think successful efforts to reach out to a wider audience shape the decisions that you were making as a writer here? Um, Well, I think that, that, um, I mean, part of it, I think, is is issues that I think that that people in in Buddhology know really well, and and I certainly don't call myself a Buddhologist. I'm not trained as a Buddhologist, but I'm very much aware of of Buddhist scholarship in East Asia, and you know. I- I think one of the things that probably Buddhologists are very much aware of is the kind of the tension between practitioners on the one hand and scholars on the other. Um, and Buddhologists, I think by and large, I mean, there are some who are kind of very critical of practitioners in general, but there's certainly um, a lot who kind of see themselves also as trying to address both audiences. And um, Hanshan was also kind of an interesting case because 
here was a poet who had a huge popularity among non-scholars, essentially. And I sort of knew that if I was going to write on Han Shan, that I just didn't want to write something that kind of came off as sort of arrogant and dismissive and sort of elitist in the way I approached the texts, because obviously the text meant a great deal to others. Um, people who, who I think were good readers of poetry and had a great respect for poetry. Um, and so what I wanted to do was to, to not feel like I was saying, well, you've got Han Shan wrong all the time. And this is, you know, this is the reason why you're all wrong about Han Shan, but rather to sort of talk about, um, how ways of reading really do change with our own circumstances and the way that we see things. And that, um, there's really nothing inherently wrong with reading the poems the way you want to read them, but also wanting, wanting them to learn a little bit. Uh, about what I could bring to them in terms of my knowledge of, of Chinese culture and Chinese literature say, well, here's something you probably didn't know about Han Shan or ways of thinking about his poems that um, you may find really enriching. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm kind of a little old fashioned, I think, in the sense that I really um, I, I, I think it's really great that our field has, you know, took this major historical turn in the sense that scholars of literature felt it was really important to work as historians also. But I can't help but think maybe in the past 20 or 30 years, we've kind of lost a little something in that we've kind of moved away from the idea that people would actually want to read literature because they loved it. And... Uh, <laughs> And 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 I, yeah, I mean that sounds terrible. And you know, there's you know, I have no colleagues who don't love literature essentially. So that's you know, but you know, it's it you know, it's uh, you know, if you if you can't really get people just to you know, if you you know, if you can't sort of address the text and say that it's something beyond something that proves a historical point or something, or you know, demonstrates that you know, examination candidates in the eighth century were writing this type of poem because of. Uh, issues involved in the system and so forth, you know, if you can't kind of make the poems just attractive for modern readers, um, then, you know, I, I, I personally always feel a little bit of a failure when that happens. And I, and I think that, you know, as the field has become much more sophisticated, um, the potential for a gap between what people in the field know and what the average educated person knows really has increased, I think, a lot. Um, even to the point where I think a lot of us get together at conferences and say, like, you know, how can we write something that, that you know, I really want to write something that other people are going to read. <laughs> and I'm just not sure how to do it, how to do something that's, that sounds intelligent, but at the same time, you know, does kind of open the field up to, to, to non-interested people. <laughs> I mean, actually not interested, not, not, <laughs> people who aren't specialists, yes, obviously people are interested. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think that was, you know, that was the main part. I mean, as for how I went about doing it, I mean, I think I started out, I mean, it does worry me a little bit that the first chapter is so technical and involves sort of Cal Jung issues and things like that. But I had sort of seen the book very much as a kind of a old fashioned appreciation, like here are some cool poems and here are some things that I'm going to say about the poems. Um, and in fact, I think that middle section was a good bit longer when I first finished the manuscript, but my editor wanted me to cut it back because I was pretty much just saying like, you know, Oh, here's another cool poem. And here's another cool poem. (laughs) And I think she felt that it was sort of getting off the track a little bit. Um, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, 
Oh no, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, since you're bringing up like some of the cool poems, we might we can dive right into that second part if you'd like. Sure. Cool. Um, so before we get to um, the second part of the book, I just want to um, mark for listeners uh, in this first part of the book, not only do we um, learn about, as, as you've just mentioned, um, issues are surrounding understanding Hanshan as an authorial figure, but also you talk about um, problems, right, with attempts to construct a biography of the poet based on the content of the poems, reading them autobiographically. Mm. And you also propose a way to think about a kind of Buddhist poetics of reading um, that might be extracted from the poems themselves. And we'll kind of see that in action once we get to part too, and perhaps we can explore that um, specifically in some of the cases that you bring us into, um, at least the um, specific thematics um, that you bring us into in the second part of the book. So mm-hmm. part two of the book uh, looks very closely at the overarching themes and also the rhetoric of the poems themselves. And in several chapters, we explore um, sort of the way meaning is made through different structural elements. We explore some um, common tropes, um, some uh, really important aspects of the poems themselves. So chapter three focuses on the ways that meaning is made in these poems through juxtapositions. And these are both internal juxtapositions and also external juxtapositions. So internally, you consider here the way that um, things like syntax and parallelism are actually creating meaning um, in these poems. And you talk specifically about not just um, the kind of aspects of poetics that these poems borrowed from mainstream Chinese poetry, but also you talk about the ways that these poems use certain strategies that make them, um, in the words of the book, amenable for the explication of Buddhist ideas. So in, um, in terms of what you are most interested in, can you talk a little bit about that last point? How did these poems use certain strategies to make them amenable for the explication of Buddhist ideas? This is one way of getting at, um, I think, a kind of Buddhist poetics that you were talking about Right, right, right. I mean, well, I think that the obvious uh, first thing I can think of, which which I think is one of the things that you're you're sort of sort of mentioning or suggesting, is um, is the fact that the Mahayana forms of thinking, sort of Chinese Buddhist forms of thinking, are so rooted in the critique of duality. Right, this idea that if we're trapped in a world of suffering, in the world of samsara. Um, then we're constantly dividing everything into A and B and making choices, essentially. And uh, a big part of the rhetoric of Buddhist philosophy are exercises to try to destabilize your sense of this duality and to realize that all dualities are false and involve making uh, choices and preferences that kind of fuel the engines of desire that create suffering in Buddhism. So one of the things that, that kind of struck me is that is that Chinese poetry is always written in couplets, uh, quite often parallel couplets or couplets that are balanced in one way or the other. And so that's a very dualistic structure. Uh, where it's first A, then B, then A, then B, then A, then B for the case of the whole poem. So one of the things I was really interested in was to see whether um, the poet of the poems was was actually sort of creating um, sort of implicit critiques of duality by kind of demonstrating um, duality uh, through 
parallelism and the choice of parallelism, and then in the end trying to undermine it or find ways of kind of emphasizing to the the audience that this is just a false distinction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I did say that in the book quite so clearly, but I think, you know, it occurs to me that this also is a way of kind of pointing to the artificiality of poetry itself, right? That poetry is an artificial mechanism for representing experience. And if you are kind of self-aware that you're dealing with a poem, um, that may make you aware that the way you're structuring reality too is, is I think potentially artificial to some extent. Um, so that's, uh, that's one way. Um, the other thing I think was the fact that um, since you have a case of 300 some poems here, um, it's quite, uh, it seems to me that it would be part of the reader's experience to often notice the way that certain themes got reinforced over and over again, and that if certain poems were placed against other poems, certain representations of of impermanence, of of suffering, and so forth, that our typical Buddhist themes kind of crop up. Um, notably, for example, in one case where I compare a poem in which a um, possibly a, a poem written in the voice of a dancing girl, a woman is sort of celebrating in this kind of um, carpe diem kind of theme about how important it is to sort of embrace life for the moment because we're all going to be dead eventually. And then the very next poem in the collection is a, is a, a, um, um, a cemetery visiting poem, essentially. Um, and so that there's, there are kind of interesting ways, I think, that and it's hard to know how intentional that was on the part of the poet or the poets, but I think the reader kind of does that, ends up creating these kind of um, juxtapositions of different kind of aspects of human existence that, that underlie the kind of the, the experience of impermanence and suffering that are, that's typical uh, of everybody's life, essentially. Right. Now, as we move into um, some of the most common themes as well in the um, poems, you bring us into a chapter that looks at the ways that some of these themes cluster around um, the, the kind of tension between staying and moving, between residence and travel. Mm. And in chapter mm. four, there's this really interesting exploration of um, the way the household and kind of notions of home come into play, the way mm. um, the ways that sort of mountain pilgrimage is going to come into play. There's also a really important theme here running through, certainly running through this chapter, of the ways of becoming a recluse by roaming at rest. Rest, right. This idea of roaming at rest. Right. Right. Can you talk about the importance of that um, for what's for what's going on? This idea that you be of the recluse roaming at rest. Sort of why um, and how is that crucial? If you think it is still um, to to what's happening in these poems. Um, well, I think it definitely is. I mean, it, one of the things that, that I felt I noticed is that they're really is two kinds of human motion in the poems. One is a kind of a, a, a restless moving back and forth, um, usually expressed by compounds that mean coming and going, a chu lai, wang lai, things like that. And, um, and this is also kind of reinforced by the idea of the, of the six paths of, of Buddhist rebirth, which, um, aren't just called, you know, realms or sort of, um, um, sort of forms of existence, but actually paths, Tao. Um, so there's, there's this idea that we're on this constant motion of the cycle of rebirth. We're constantly suffering. We're constantly, constantly suffering impermanence. We're being reborn and are kind of driven about back and forth. But yet there's another form of motion, which is this kind of um, kind of 
also very influenced by Taoism, I think, this idea of Zhuangzi's free and easy roaming, this kind of xiaoyao, which comes up in, in a number of the poems, which uh, seems to suggest that, that movement and traveling and motion is a great thing, not just because it represents freedom, but also, I think, in, in Mahayana, the bodhisattva ideal of helping other sentient beings is also important. It sort of frees you up for activity. Um, often sort of uh, beneficent activity. Um, and this really comes up, I think, in the Hakuin commentary, where um, I think one of the reasons I like Hakuin so much is that he's such a crank. Um, he's just, he, if, you, if you read his autobiography too, he's just, you know, he's the opposite of how modern Buddhist practitioners in the West see Buddhism as this kind of serene, kind of perfect, nothing ever bothers you. Um, I mean, Hakuin was just constantly complaining about everything. Um, and uh, I think this is one of the reasons why he likes Hanshan, because Hanshan often has a very kind of cranky voice. But um, the big thing that really bothered the hell out of Hakuin was this uh, was that meditation had started to become more popular in Edo, Japan in the 18th century. So um, there were a lot of kind of meditation programs for lay people and so forth. And, and um, ordinary people were kind of participating in meditation. So it was a lot like sort of Zen centers in America today. And um, Hakuin just thought this was awful because he thought this was just teaching people just to sit and not think and empty their brains and that that really wasn't a sort of a creative, active, compassionate form of Buddhism. So um, this was a theme he, he really stresses in his commentary where he says, you know, um, to be a recluse, supposedly in the Hanshan sense, to engage in kind of like free roaming beyond ordinary society isn't just to sit cross-legged and not think anything. It's to kind of actively participate in in the world around you to sort of find connections and to save sentient beings. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I really like this kind of way in which, in which the, the Hanshan poems kind of rhetorically work out this kind of idea of, of um, home versus motion, but uh, the homes that we have in the regular secular world are deceptively rest that we're still kind of being driven around by the forces of change, even if we're living in one place, whereas the, the, the true freedom is something that comes when you escape from the burning house of the Lotus Sutra parable and you're kind of uh, in a state of liberation where you can sort of go out and, and help people and have that kind of sense of freedom. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's mm. It's a great chapter. Mm, thanks. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so as we move to the next chapter, we move to a chapter that looks at some of the recurring images and motifs of these poems. Um, and this this is some great stuff here. We talk about, or you talk here about blasted trees, about jewels, about the moon, about beautiful women. Um, so let's start by at least taking on one of them. Now you make a point here in chapter five that Buddhist readers would likely take images, tropes, and vocabulary from both Buddhist and non-Buddhist texts texts and to mm. use them to suggest Buddhist content. And you talk about this in the context of your discussion of the recurring motif of blasted trees in these yeah. poems. So can you talk about this in the context of 
blasted trees. Um, it's just such a powerful, you know, kind of image here. Um, what's going on with blasted trees that you think is particularly interesting here? Um, well, I think it's it's interesting because in some ways it, it, it's a really rich image, I think, for all of the great religious traditions um, in China. It, it On the one hand, you kind of have this um, this image in the Zhuangzi, I think that I mentioned in passing, where at the beginning of the beginning of, of the second chapter of the Zhuangzi, there is a, a meditator who is admired for making himself as dead as a as a dead tree as a blasted tree. Um, but then there's also a kind of a, a rich Confucian moral discourse uh, that surrounds the blasted tree, um, which kind of starts out with this idea of of trees being useful but then not being used, which is kind of also playing with drawings a, a little bit, but also talks about the um, uh, the the anxiety over educated men not being chosen to, to serve the state and so forth. And then the sort of the, the idea of the tree is sort of as a, as a kind of a, a blasted tree has um, sort of connotations in terms of um, – uh, of of uh, talent going to waste, essentially, or as I say, in some cases, even kind of a, a potential criticism of people who were never really worthwhile to begin with, essentially, and were useless. But part of that's kind of rooted in that kind of pun that recurs in these cases of tai as being both timber and talent, right? Um, but what's really kind of interesting is that the, that Han Shan takes about four of these poems, um, and in one of which... He's also drawing upon uh, an image from a Buddhist sutra uh, that talks about um, the sort of the, the withered tree losing all of its vegetation and even its bark as kind of peeling it itself down to its essentials um, so that you, you are actually getting the kind of um, uh, pure, austere core of, of uh, the enlightened being when you do that. Um, so the poems are kind of interesting because they, they realize that you can – portray blasted trees in all sorts of ways. You can see them as positive things, as kind of representing the Bodhisattva or the Buddha, but you could also see them as um, as uh, examples of impermanence, trees that sort of wither and die because they're not being looked after, or, you know, aspects of talent, once again, the sort of the Confucian theme of, of the talented person who is, uh, doesn't get to use his talents. Um, I think in one particular interesting case that I talk about it, it Hakuin tries to take a, what, what really is probably a very Confucian poem about the tree not being used for service and instead sort of uses it as a kind of a metaphor for the bodhisattva who is kind of lured away by um, uh, sort of non-Buddhist teachings and ends up sort of wasting himself for several eons before he kind of gets back on track and, and sort of goes back to sort of playing his role. So you can sort of tell that, that, uh, that the poems are kind of situated at a point where the readership, you know, presumably knows a lot of the sutra literature, but they're also kind of very much familiar with with kind of the classic Confucian images and how to interpret them. And um, it, it kind of shows you the the interesting place this collection has, I think, in the sense that that it it 
you know, it does participate in this mainstream tradition, but also tries to do different things with it, um, drawing upon a kind of a different form of cultural capital in terms of like sutra literature and so forth. Now, another one of these tropes that I mentioned is the trope of beautiful women, or mm. uh, better put, as you put it in the book, the activities of attractive women from a voyeuristic male perspective. Now, some mm. of these poems are actually kind of mildly erotic. So what's up with that? Um, <laughs> what is going on with these mildly erotic poems? I, I actually have no idea what's going on in them. Um, <laughs> when I talk about them. Um, I mean, I think what interests me about them, um, if, if you take the kind of, I think, the modern Western perspective on the poems, which is that they were assembled by, uh, say, various folk poets, um, their existence, their presence in the collection is pretty easy to explain because they play very much on certain tropes that are associated with the mainstream folk poetry tradition involving ladies going out in lotus boats and picking lotus flowers or just picking flowers in general and handsome guys watching them and so forth and flirting with them. Very, very old tradition dates back to the Han dynasty. Um, so the poems themselves aren't that unusual, um, except for maybe in one case where the ending is very puzzling. But um, of course, the idea is, is what are they doing in this collection, right? Um, and how would a reader try to find uh, excuses for why Han Chan would have put them in the collection? Um, I'd hope to have Hakuin say some interesting things. And, and he does have that really kind of amusing reading of the, the prostitute poem, right? Where mm-hmm. the essentially it's the voice of a prostitute saying like, you know, oh, come here and stay, you know, get drunk here. And then you don't have to go. You can sleep with me tonight. And Hakuin's kind of reading this as kind of a metaphor of the sufferings of samsara and the importance of escaping, you know, the brothel, <laughs> the burning house as brothel in this case. But in other cases, he really wasn't a help at all. And there's actually some amusing points where he just says, you know, I don't know what's going on here. Hanshan is obviously too deep and profound for me to understand why this poem is here. Um, but I, I was kind of interested, I think, in broader terms um, of, you know, the, uh, the, the role of women, um, particularly groups of women in a number of stories that that are kind of touch on the idea of skillful means, this idea that people are brought to enlightenment um, through any sort of unconventional, strange way um, that, that bodhisattvas feel fit to use. And um, consequently, I was kind of sensitive to examples of, um, of large groups of, of sort of like beautiful women and what are they doing in Buddhist narrative. And um, obviously attracted to the one Jataka tale, about Kishiti Garba uh, and the way in which um, uh, Kishiti Garba, the holy man, lures the king's women away from him through his virtuous teachings, uh, with the result that the king, in a jealous rage, uh, sort of hacks him to bits. And then the the later, uh, much more amusing story from the Vimalakirti story, where um, Vimalakirti lures Mara's daughters away from him, Mara being sort of like the, the Buddhist devil, uh, by preaching to them. And um, the the thing that sort of fascinates about about me about this, I think, is the way that that women are kind of tokens in the story of teaching, um, and there's kind of forms of seduction that are going on. Um, but there, it's seduction through Buddhism rather than through just sort of sexual attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I'm still a little, you know, I'm still a little unsure what the poems are doing there. And and the main conclusion I come to is that the is that the readers probably knew these stories, and it may have some role in the way that they they think about the roles of of groups of beautiful women in these poems if they're trying to see them from a Buddhist perspective. Um, but uh, that that in many ways is the most tentative part of the book. I mean, I, I put it in there because I I loved writing about it, but um, you know, I'm not quite sure how it fits in. You know, it's not as strong, uh, I think, uh, as strongly linked to kind of Buddhist themes as a lot of other parts are. Um, I mean, there is the kind of the the one puzzling poem where they seem to come in and, and can possibly either observe or console uh, a lost soul, um, in which case they, as I suggest, they may be kind of like Mara's daughters who have now converted been converted to Buddhism by Vimalakirti, and so they've now become kind of a force for good. But um, but certainly in later Buddhism, particularly in Japan, I think the theme of of kind of seductive women leading people to Buddhist truths is kind of a recurring motif. Mm-hmm. Um, you see it in, in uh, quite often in, in a number of famous Japanese stories where, say, bodhisattvas take the form of prostitutes, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and there may be some, you know, similarities there to uh, traditions of, of bhakti in India, for example, where um, the relationship between the devotee and the god is often compared to sort of like relationships with courtesans and, and things like that. So, um, but it's, it's, it's really more a section I had fun reading than a section I feel is an essential part of the argument. A lot of ways. <laughs> well, so we're almost at the Dharma bums. Um, so, uh-huh. But in, before we get to the Dharma bums, let's talk just a little Oops. bit about satire. In this last part of the um, second part, uh, or this last chapter of the second part of the book, you look at the ways that some of these poems are using satire to critique society. And you bring us into um, the use of animal fables. You bring us into the parodies of scholars, of the rich and wealthy, of mm. monks, um, of a, the guileless fool figure. For mm. you, um, what's perhaps most important um, to you that we understand about the ways that these poems are using satire as a form of social critique? Mm. Uh, I think, well, at least for me, I think what was most important was the fact that that, that people not ignore these poems because I think they're uh, especially, I think, with modern readers, they're the poems that often get the least attention. Uh, I think, once again, because of our, our cliche vision of, of what it means to be a sort of a transcendent Buddhist figure, um, since these are the crankiest poems in the collection, um, the one where the ones where Hanchan is, is obviously ticked off the way society is working. Um, I, and just the fact that, that the collection has so many of them, and, and I think also the fact that they're, for me at least, they're relatively quite upfront about criticizing society in a way that the the classic kind of satiric or what's often called satiric or functional mode that occurs in, in Confucian poetry is is it's a little bit different, right? I think in the, in the Confucian tradition, there's this kind of sense that society is basically rooted in good principles. It's only corrupt people that cause problems, and the importance of writing satiric poems is to point out a particular social ill or uh, even a specific corrupt official and get rid of him. Um, and so those poems are kind of written very much from the point of view of like, you know, I am a, a socially self-conscious and conscientious Confucian and I want 
people to realize that this is a problem. Whereas with Hanshan, it's it's really much more, I think, taken from the point of, of Buddhist critique in the sense that he's much more conscious of the corruption of society. Um, and the, 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 the criticism of the clergy, that was a very common thing in the Tang in general, although the savagery of a lot of the comments he makes about the clergy is maybe a little stronger than most. But I also just found interesting that, that his the way he represents the rich just really struck me. Um, where once again, I think in, in most other Chinese satiric traditions, there's always this kind of sense of like, you know, if you're rich, make sure that you owe your obligations to the poor and make sure that you give money to the clergy because that's important, you know, and you can be a good rich person if you do these things. But Anshan kind of basically dislikes the rich period. Um, and, you know, and, and uh, just out and out says that, you know, it's like the more money you have, the more stupid you are. <laughs> Things like that. Um, and I, I found that very refreshing. I found the kind of the, the just sort of the, the sharpness and the, the general sort of give them hell kind of quality of the satiric poems are maybe not unique in the Chinese tradition, but I think largely pretty unusual. Um, and so, you know, I think that was the main reason. You know, it, was, it was mainly also just because I do feel that it's such an essential part of the collection that if you don't take that into consideration, you're really kind of missing a major part of it. And uh, it's also kind of, I think, the, you know, part of the poems that, that made Hakuin so fond of them, right? It's because I say Hakuin was somebody who did not suffer fools lightly and who tended to be pretty grouchy uh, in most of his writings. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, partly I think also because I, I'm sort of like that in a way. So I wanted to make sure that the, the, the grumpiness of the book, of the collection came through, I think, to some extent. Yes, you sound very grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't sound grumpy at all. <laughs> you should ask my wife. My okay. wife feels that. <laughs> This um, this uh, grumpiness um, in the book, not at all in you, I will say. Um, this brings us to a really, really fascinating part of the book. Now, this is part three, um, which mm. consists in one chapter. And this is a part of the book that explores some modern American texts that show a Buddhist influence. Now, you've already talked a little bit about, um, or at least at the very beginning of our conversation, you alluded to the fact that Gary Snyder, um, who also blurbs the book, incidentally, the poet, um, he actually did a translation of um, some of the Hanshan poems. You bring up the Dharma bums at the very beginning of the book. And this is a chapter here that really takes us right into um, beat and post-beat writing to look at the ways that we can see some Buddhist resonances in this work. So a lot of the chapter looks explicitly at Kerouac's The Dharma bums, And you kind of make the point here that reading the Dharma bums as Buddhist allows us to see how it depicts a kind of pilgrimage to Cold Mountain, right? This is, mm. um, uh, this is a story that takes them to the Matterhorn, a peak in the Sierra Nevada, and you read this as a kind of pilgrimage to Hanshan. So I'm just going to like hit the ball over to you now. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, for you, is it important and interesting for us to read the Dharma Bums as um, a kind of story ultimately about and inspired by Cold Mountain? Ah, that's a good question. I mean, I think one of the reasons I decided that I really wanted to write about the Dharma bums was that it was kind of returning back to the ground zero of, of why I wrote the book to begin with, which was, you know, a lot of it was tied to, to the popularity of, of the poems and, and why they were popular. 
Um, so in some ways, I, you know, maybe what I see what I'm doing as kind of if, if the Dharma Bums is a novel that tries to look at Han Shan, I'm trying to write as Han Shan looking at the Dharma Bums. Um, and I think that that um, it's very easy, I think, to make a kind of a superficial reading of the book in Buddhist terms, um, which I think is, is often when I talk to, to people, to colleagues uh, and to other people who have read the Dharma bombs and say like, Oh yeah, I read that as a teenager and it really got me interested in Buddhism. Um, Cause it is, it's very something that's very much appealing, I think in many ways to, to teenage sensibilities. Um, particularly if you're a guy. Um, and, and interestingly enough, I was recently talking to a, a, a colleague, a woman colleague, and we were talking about like sort of the, the rather horrible misogyny that occurs in a lot of Kerouac's writing. And she said, Oh, well, I didn't mind that as a teenager because I always saw myself as a guy when I read them. <laughs> um, which I think is probably what a lot of girls who, who were, went through a beat phase probably had to do, I think. But um, it occurred to me that, that it was possible to give a more sophisticated reading of it. If you're a little more critical of Ray's own kind of struggle with enlightenment and trying to find enlightenment in the book and to kind of see the, the, as I say in the book, that Buddhism is really kind of much more of a contested space in the book than um, I think most people uh, tend to interpret it. Because you really have, you have, uh, I almost said Gary Snyder, I want to say Jaffe Ryder, so hard with Kerouac to keep them apart. Um, or Jaffe Ryder is kind of very pro-Zen, he's very pro-environmentalism, um, he's kind of very self-assured. Um, and then you have Ray as a kind of a much more sort of suffering, unhappy, unsure person who nonetheless uh, kind of is really focused on the idea of compassion um, and trying to communicate with the sort of the down and out people in the world. And so I was really kind of fascinated in seeing these two forms of Buddhism really kind of set up in opposition to each other. Um, and the fact that a lot of the book is, is essentially Jaffe trying to, to get Ray to come over to his side of Buddhism and that Ray really resists it. And ultimately, um, at least my argument is, is that the only way that he does so in the very end of the book is to kind of, uh, turn Jaffe into a kind of transcendental being that he can worship, but that he doesn't have to listen to. Um, because Jaffe's always telling him, don't drink so much, behave yourself, you know, don't destroy yourself. Um, and so the, in a lot of ways, it, it kind of represents a bit of a failure. Uh, I'm not sure that, I think people have talked about the way that the Buddhist project of Kerouac's did essentially fail after the Dharma bombs, um, particularly in, in works like Desolation Peak, um, sort of later novels. And, and as I said, he, he essentially became a kind of a reactionary Catholic in his last years. Um, but the, uh, the way in which he works through these issues, trying to think about, um, uh, skillful means, like the best way to sort of reach enlightenment, um, how he's reacting to, to Jaffe throughout the book, um, how he kind of resists Jaffe's advice, his attempts to find like counter models uh, for Buddhist experience and trying to embrace those um, just really struck me um, that it, it really laid itself open to, I guess what you'd maybe call a, a Buddhist critique, I think, to a certain extent, kind of like, you know, sort of what went wrong essentially. And uh, I think the thing that struck me most of all, as I say in the book, is that when he finally gets to the final mountain, where he supposedly has this amazing transcendental experience at the very end of the book by himself, um, uh, is that, that 
as I think I say, like in nine pages, he says I or me something like 180 times or something, right? And so it, he, it doesn't seem like he's really kind of like getting over the self there very successfully, right? right? Um, so I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was really kind of a big part of my, uh, you know, was to try to talk about the book and, and not be patronizing to it by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, and say like, oh, the beats, they really didn't understand Buddhism, but rather to sort of see the book as actually a book that, that really exemplifies and sort of illustrates a lot of really significant Buddhist ideas. Um, and I'd been sort of, I'd been sort of teaching it like that, I think in classes for maybe about five or six years. Uh, so I'd been really thinking about it for a long time. Um, Great. And so also the chapter, we won't have time to really talk about this in any kind of detail, but just to mark for listeners who might be particularly interested in this aspect of the book and the conversation, um, there's also a lot more attention um, given in this chapter to other writers and poets. Um, The chapter looks at Gary Snyder, it looks at Jane Hirschfield, um, and it looks at um, writing that can be, again, kind of revisioned and also help us revision how we think about and think with Buddhism and writing in these contexts. So it's really, really interesting. And I highly recommend to listeners who are particularly interested in this to get your hands on a copy of the book and definitely, definitely make sure that you pour over chapter seven because there's a lot of really great stuff in there. So, Paul, um, we're now this brings us actually toward our conclusion. And there's so much, of course, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? There's, the book is full of these wonderful translations of the poems. I mean, it's full of discussions of all this stuff that we've just um, kind of lightly touched on. But given that, is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about? And perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers. Um, I'm not, I'm not really sure there's that much more I could say. I mean, um, just that I hope that, that, that people who aren't necessarily scholars of East Asia will find something worthwhile in it. Um, I've been, uh, mostly through the help of an old student of mine who's now an ordained Soto priest. Um, she's been actually taking me around to, to Zen centers, for example, in the Midwest to actually talk to, to, uh, uh, to practitioners. And that's actually been kind of entertaining. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it was a great book to write. It's probably, uh, I feel a little ashamed that it was such an easy book and a fun book to write. Um, I didn't have horrible sufferings writing it the way most of, most of us do. <laughs> and I, you know, I hope people won't necessarily hate me because I say that, but, um, <laughs> that's about, that's about it. I think. So now that the book is out, what's next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by? And what can we hope to read soon? Or next, uh, but, if not soon? But- well, I kind of like to, to, to build a little bit more on the idea in the book about, about, um, a Buddhist poetics and aesthetics. And I'm kind of thinking about taking it from the point of view of performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of, and, and starting with the Vimalakirti Sutra, which essentially is a sutra about this kind of, this lay believer who, uh, essentially tricks all of these, uh, believers into achieving enlightenment through, uh, various sort of arguments and, and, performances and things like that. And I'm kind of thinking about 
Well, I'm actually giving a talk in about two months, which I'm calling the Bodhisattva as jerk, um, <laughs> which is sort of the idea of the sort of being deliberately unpleasant and uh, in order to, to get people to enlightenment and the kind of how that takes place in forms of, of competition, antagonism, uh, performance and things like that. It's um, the other thing that sort of reminds me of is the kind of the thing that I'm in terror of, which is going to live theater and having the the members of the troupe come down into the theater and make you do things, <laughs> which is one of the great terrors I have in life. And, and I sort of I sort of see that a lot of Buddhist performance is sort of like this. Um, <laughs> Um, deliberately trying to, to annoy you or, or drag you into things. Um, and so I'm kind of working on that. It'll probably touch on film as well, I think, because I've been thinking a lot about Buddhist cinema as well and, and how I can talk about that in the future. So. Very cool. Well, you're giving me flashbacks of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, so this is probably a good time <laughs> yes, to bring it to a close. A very, a very Buddhist work, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Um, and thank you so much for taking time away from the work you've described to talk to me about the book today. Um, it's a great book, and congratulations. Uh, thank you. It's been fun. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>